Hi, and welcome to Maybe Today Matinee, a podcast about all things film before you were born. I'm Monica. I'm David. This month, we're watching Halloween horror films. And today, we're talking about Naresh Mitra's 1950 film, Kankal. A man is killed by a skeleton in a medical office. As the police arrive and clear the dead body away, one of them sits down with a doctor who tells the story behind what happened, which we now see in flashback. 18-year-old Tarola has been carrying on a secret relationship with a man named Apoy. When he declines to marry her, she decides to marry Raton, a wealthy heir and former student of her brother's. Enraged, Apoy arranges to be married to Raton's cousin as an excuse to be close to Tarola. When Tarola rejects him, and Apoy's new wife overhears their argument, Apoy spins the story to his wife to make it seem like Tarola was the one pursuing him. Tarola's husband, Raton, goes to the stock market to try to make some money. And it so happens that Apoy is an investment advisor there. Raton is unaware of Apoy's relationship with Tarola. And though another investment advisor and Tarola herself warn him not to play the stock market, Apoy draws him in with some successful returns. He also tempts Raton into gambling on horse racing. We learn that Apoy is conspiring with his henchmen at the stock market to swindle Raton out of all his money. And pretty soon, all that remains to Raton is his house, Tarola's jewelry, and a pile of debt. He continues to take Apoy's advice, as he has not realized Apoy's true intentions. Soon enough, he loses the house and Tarola's jewelry as well, and the two move to a small and disheveled rental. Meanwhile, Apoy's wife, a.k.a. Raton's cousin, is facing complications from her pregnancy and is in critical condition at the hospital. Though her cousin visits her, Apoy is nowhere to be found. Apoy's fellow investment advisors realize he is up to no good and kick him out of the stock market. Raton has found a job at a newspaper, working desperately to make back the money he lost. One night, while Raton has gone to work, Tarola receives a message from her sister-in-law's driver asking Tarola to come visit her home to get back jewelry and the title to her house. When Tarola goes, she finds that her sister-in-law is still in the hospital and only Apoy is home. He tells her he wants to take everything from Raton, his house, his wife's jewelry, and now his wife. But he will give back the house and the jewelry if Tarola lets him have her. Tarola refuses, but Apoy begins to force himself on her. Meanwhile, Raton has come home early from his job and finds the message his wife had read earlier. Alarmed, he hurries to Apoy's house. When Apoy hears Raton entering, he shoves Tarola in a closet and locks the door. When Raton climbs the stairs, Apoy pushes him down, seriously injuring him. He later finds Tarola dead in the closet and has to hide her body. Raton's fall has erased his memory, but he wanders the streets, approaching any woman he thinks resembles his dead wife. A doctor takes him in to try to treat him, but the doctor has an interest in the supernatural. He obtains a book from Tarola's brother, a book which Tarola often read and which deals with spirits. The doctor believes Raton should see a medium to try to communicate with his wife. Tarola's skeleton is eventually discovered in a lake, and Raton becomes obsessed with it, carrying it with him. The skeleton is taken to the hospital and hung up in the doctor's office. One night, as the doctor dozes at his desk, the skeleton taps him on the head and appears as Tarola. The doctor asks her who killed her so that that person may be punished, but she says she will punish the perpetrator herself. We return to the scene from the beginning of the movie where a boy visits the hospital. He sneaks into the doctor's office where Tarola's skeleton is waiting to murder him. Raton arrives in time to see the punishment meted out and appears pleased. Okay, so this movie, and I have to preface this by saying it was really, really difficult to find detailed information about this movie. So this synopsis is entirely based on what I could get from basically one viewing. So if any listeners can correct me on anything, we welcome corrections. But with that said, David, what did you think of Kangal? It was interminable. I, oh gosh, I don't know what to make of it. We're going to get into all of these issues later, but I don't I don't think this is a horror film and it kind of wind it winds up playing out like a really standard like gambling is bad story for for most of the runtime. It's just it's it's really a mess. 
Oh my gosh, interminable. So you didn't like this movie. I absolutely do my best to give every movie the benefit of the doubt and kind of stay with them. And maybe 20 minutes into the movie, I wanted to turn it off. Like I was, it, I, I really did not care for this one. Oh, I think this is the first movie I picked that you don't like. The, the funny thing for me is that maybe because I had read background information and the reviews of this movie were not so good, I actually liked it a lot better than I expected, and I kind of enjoyed it. So, um, Oh, really? Oh, wow. <laughs> I actually enjoyed it. So, um, yeah, let's talk about this in more depth. I, I wanted to um, kind of get us a little bit grounded in horror as a genre and Indian film. It's not, I think when we think of India and all its different film industries, horror is just not something we that normally comes to mind. But this is what we can say about it. Um, basically, post-independence, censorship kind of prohibited the development of horror films in Indian cinema, even though they were importing a lot of foreign movies that were horror films that did really, really well. Um, and then another factor was that often horror films are more expensive to make maybe than just typical family dramas or something. So that could have been another reason um, that they took a little while to develop. But also um, these horror as a genre was not really taken seriously by critics. Um, and when you think of Indian horror today, what most people think of are the Hindi language uh, Ramsey films of the 70s and 80s. The Ramseys were a pair of brothers who did a lot of like very violent, very sexual, gratuitous kind of uh, horror movies um, from that period. That's what most people think of. Like um, kind of exploitation films. Uh, yeah, something like that. I got to say, I haven't seen any of them myself. But if you Google like Indian horror, that's those are probably the first, mo first movies that are going to pop up. I thought I'd give a little bit of an overview of kind of what you will see since uh, India and South Asia as a whole are very linguistically diverse. They're divided up into a lot of regional industries catering to those different languages. But some examples of what you'll see in those uh, regional industries is in the Hindi industry, what you've seen mostly is a lot of films with uh, European-style horror monsters, um, animal transformation, and also slasher movies. The Malayalam language industry um, has drawn on a lot of local folklore for their horror movies. Um, and meanwhile, the Tamil industry, um, which is a very, very big industry, um, actually just has a very limited number of horror films in its history. And, of course, the movie that we uh, watch for, for this episode, Kankal, is in Bengali. And I'll get into more detail about Bengali cinema in a moment. Um, but just to the extent that um, horror film is not or hasn't been taken seriously in, in South Asia, I wonder, David, if you think there has been a similar attitude in the U.S. or in the West as a whole and whether that has always been true. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's probably changed a great deal in the past maybe 40 years. Um, very slowly, I think we've started to see, it, I, I talked about this last episode, but the rise of prestige horror and like the A24 films and this very, you know, very sleek, like rich horror films. But for a very long time, I think they're not, they're kind of seen as, as, sideshow attractions and and uh you know literally you go to a carnival and you get on a ride and you're spooked for uh 90 seconds or whatever and then you get off i think that's how a lot of film criti critics have seen horror films and as a result uh you kind of create this idea that they they're they're a basic commodity and can can kind of be broken down into a binary right like they're either scary or they're not scary and that's kind of the extent of it and so i think that has a lot to do with it not really being taken that seriously that as well as and this is something that extends to literature as well the idea that uh kind of science fiction fantasy horror uh literature was not taken as seriously as as perhaps like more realist or or romance novels uh and i think that that kind of spread to film as well Ah, kind. You mean like genre fiction as a whole, right? Mm -hmm. Which I think is a little bit peculiar because I think also like detective novels have kind of been looked down upon for a long time in a similar sense. But then one of the defining genres of like artistic film is film noir, which are basically you know adapted 
detective novels. So it's, I guess not everything is kind of a uh, one-to-one comparison like that. Um, For noir, though, when it was initially released, long before it would become known as film noir, do you think people thought of it as artistic or was it just more entertainment? Probably more entertainment, but I I would say that like like a film we are going to cover on the podcast, Double Indemnity, Billy Wilder, I think was accepted as an artistic director long before like James Whale, who did um Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. So maybe not at that immediate moment, but I think there was a pretty quick critical consensus that uh that film noir was was uh, something legitimate. Even even before it necessarily had that that name that genre name, you think that horror has only been regarded critically over in the last thirty years. So you would say even by like the seventies with like The Exorcist, which I I kind of always had the impression immediately was considered as having artistic merit. Do you think people thought that way about horror in that period? Well, I think there there are exceptions, right? So I. I think probably people thought of of The Exorcist as having artistic merit, and kind of similarly, the um, the films we talked about on the show, uh, Nasratu and Cabinet of Doctor Caligari, I think were pretty highly regarded. Um, not too long after their release as being kind of artistic achievements. But I think as a whole, especially when you look at maybe the 80s and kind of like the slasher genre, I think the impression is that like it's a bunch of trash that can kind of just be sort of, you know, thrown into the trash. And there are occasional like bright spots of artistic design, but by and large, uh, horror is not worth it. So I think that notion is starting to change. Well, let's talk a little more in detail about Bengali cinema. So in spite of what one's impressions may be of this film, um, Bengali cinema as a whole has long had a very um, prestigious reputation. And as we mentioned in our episode about the Hindi language film from the 50s, Devdas, Bengal has long been a literary hub in South Asia, and that's kind of I think, why their cinema um, got such an artistic reputation. They were very successful initially, and then they ran into some trouble with the advent of talkies. So during the silent era, when they made films in Bengal, they could make the film, and then they could change the intertitles depending on which market they were sending the film to. Since... India and South Asia as a whole are very linguistically diverse. It was very beneficial to just be able to change out those inner titles and then distribute your movie all over the subcontinent. Um, However, um, once talkies came around, that became a lot more difficult. I I think we've talked a lot about how in Europe, like when we talked about Vampire, they would make a movie and then make it into like maybe three languages, right? French, German, and English, I think was the case with that film. The problem in India is that there's even way more languages than that. And once you're to the point where you need audio to reflect all those languages, that's a lot more work. Do your actors speak all those languages? So that kind of put a dent in their market. And a lot of Bengali filmmakers went to Bombay, where the Hindi language film industry was based because Hindi, even though Bengali and Hindi are both widely spoken languages, Hindi just has more speakers. Um, So the Bengali industry tried to adapt by making movies in Hindi, Telugu and Tamil to try to cater to these other language groups. In spite of all those difficulties, they enjoyed a golden age from about the 50s to the 70s. So if you're familiar with the Apu trilogy, of course, that's from that era. Um, But then in the 80s, they kind of faced a downturn as Bengali audiences started to look towards Hindi films or TV instead. And to adapt once again, Bengali filmmakers have tried to refocus on rural audiences in um, Bengal, but as a whole, the industry hasn't risen to the prominence it once had. But as far as Kankal specifically, it was perhaps the first Bengali horror film, and it was an experiment because, like I said, at the time, so this film came out in 1950, uh, the Bengali film industry was still trying to, to deal with the fact that 
that they couldn't compete now in the era of of talkies, even this many years after it had started. Um, so they were experimenting with different genres. And um, even though um, horror movies never have never gotten really big in Bengali cinema, what's interesting about them is that a lot of the filmmakers who are really considered greats from the region experimented with the genre, including Satyajit Rai. So I, when I was trying to pick movies for this Halloween horror month, I was looking really hard to find stuff that was non-Western and even non-Japanese. Um, but it's, it was really difficult. As I told you, David, I found this uh, Pakistani movie called Zindalash, otherwise known as Dracula in Pakistan. And I tried so hard to track down that movie to talk about it. But in the end, I couldn't. Um, but there's just really when you look at films, if our podcast focuses on 1975 and earlier, it's really, really hard to find stuff that's not in Western. And I think part of that is just that a lot of it is just not made accessible to English-speaking audiences. But I also think there's just a, a lack of films made from those earlier periods from all these international industries. So I wondered on that note, David, what the extent is of your experience with non-Western horror films, and why does it seem like this genre is so slow to develop in a lot of industries? Well, so I, I don't want to pretend like I'm speaking with any authority because I, I think, uh, you know, primarily whatever I do know about film is is primarily Western-centric, uh, not by conscious decision, but I think that's usually the, the material that is most easily accessible and most heavily uh, written about, at least in, in the States. So I, I don't, I guess non-Western horror films, honestly, it's primarily just... Japan and then also also a, a couple of relatively recent horror films from Korea so uh the Park Chan-wook film Thirst and then the Bang Joon-ho film The Host which are both really really great but otherwise I really don't have that much experience I'm hesitant to say that like horror just doesn't really exist elsewhere because I, I think it really does, but it is very hard to to kind of get your hands on or or more specifically outside of maybe specific horror hangouts, right? So like uh, I, I don't maybe there's a subreddit that I'm not on or something, or like in, you know, film Twitter, there's kind of a section of film Twitter that is focused on like non-Western horror films. But outside of that, you're just not really going to hear about these movies that much. So I think it, it really takes a lot of kind of a, a, a deliberate choice and, and hunting them down to be able to, to, to find them. Because I, I also know that there have been with one film in particular, uh, I'm thinking of the uh, may the devil take you from what I understand, there's kind of a rising Indonesian horror film wave uh, that's been happening since the 2000s. But I don't, you know, I don't really know any more about it other than vaguely being aware that it exists. And as far as like why the genre appears slow to develop, I think that the trick with horror is that it's still very much a niche thing. So it it might be harder to get investment in a horror film to get the necessary funds to make a film that it is a horror film than it would be to make uh, perhaps more more of a straightforward drama. Not to mention drama is just uh, kind of like you were saying earlier. It's it's just cheaper, right? If you have a lot of dialogue scenes, all you have to worry about is you know actors and and the script and and dressing the sets and everything. But you don't have to worry about any kind of effects. Whereas horror, not not always, but almost always, relies on some kind of visual trickery. And a lot of times that, you know, that ups your budget. So that would kind of be my best guess for why, if there are actually fewer horror films being produced, that might be kind of kind of the cause. Yeah, and I do want to say that it seems like there's a lot of contemporary international horror available because I would Google, like, Egyptian horror films or Bengali horror films or like whatever. And you would get all these examples from the past 20, even 30, even 40 years. You could find quite a few. So it seems like it's blossomed. But just from these earlier periods, it's quite hard to find. So um, talking about Kankal specifically, let's get in a little bit to the director. Um, 
the director was Naresh Mitra. He was an actor, director, and a screenwriter. And he was actually the director of the first film adaptation of Devdas, which came out in 1928 and was a silent movie. Again, see our earlier Devdas episode if you want more information of, about that story and all its cinematic incarnations. Naresh Mitra was actually also an actor in Kankal. He played the professor, um, who's also Tarola's brother in this film. By the way, um, as I mentioned, the subtitles in this movie were very questionable, and this character appeared a lot older than Tarola, so I I kept wondering whether this was a mistranslation that we were seeing. Did you get that vibe? Yeah, I it was it must have been his like fifth or sixth appearance that I finally realized he was supposed to be her brother. And like that just doesn't it doesn't scan because she's what in her 20s. She's 18. Yeah, so she's 18. He looks at least to be 50, if not older. Uh, he really, really looked old. I've, I've got to think that it's just something that got mistranslated or it's like a a sec uh a second brother is that even a thing i don't think that's a thing but like you know a, a cousin brother. or something <laughs> you, you know what i mean like kind of how like you call people your aunties and uncles when they're not technically your parents siblings it's got to be something like that if any listeners know you can clue us in but at any rate Naresh mithra played that character as a director uh like i said he got his start in silent films and went on to make talkies um and then later in his career he started to focus on jatra which is a kind of bengali folk theater i wonder david what you because again the information was very hard to come by about this director and a lot of the actors in this film but um just looking at this particular work um what could you figure out about his approach to filmmaking and kind of per our discussion last week about vampire when a director moves from making silent films to making talkies do you think that there's any indication in kunkal that um mitra got his start in silent films uh, man i don't even know <laughs> um <laughs> I, I, I so i didn't really get any sense that he seemed uncomfortable working in in talkies just because there was so much dialogue in this film, right? Mm -hmm. Like the film isn't easily 95, 96% just characters having conversations. So I think it's, he seemed comfortable handling that because there wasn't, you know, there weren't any obvious problems there. It was also much later from when talkies first started versus vampire, which was just a couple years into it. Right. Right. So, yeah, he clearly, I think, would have had more experience than, than Dreyer did by this point. I don't necessarily like doing this because obviously the ultimate goal of this film and the ultimate goal of Vampire are very different. But looking at this film, I think really made me appreciate how good Vampire was because this this film is shot so conservatively. And it kind of doesn't surprise me that he didn't necessarily have that much of a background in horror. Most of the scenes struck me as as being very dialogue-driven, very social drama, like that's the entire focus, with a few exceptions, right? So when um, the husband, uh, who goes crazy? Raton? Uh, yeah. Uh, Raton. When he goes to the track for the first time, and they have that shot of you know, the racetrack and he's superimposed over it and the, you know, the music's kind of speeding up. That was kind of a rare moment of experimentation here where it seemed like he was trying to, again, use more specifically filmic techniques to draw the audience into uh, into the mindset of the character. And also I thought uh, some of the most successful sequences were with the skeleton, uh, in particular, when the the doctor is having the conversation with the skeleton, at various points, the skeleton is like semi-animated and shot in a good amount of shadow. We have Tarula's face kind of over the skeleton, but like it's so it's so dark that it appears just like the skeleton has eyes and maybe the you know a little bit of hair, which I thought was actually really effective um and he kind of he does that repeatedly where he plays with this idea of the the skeleton being half skeleton half you know kind of spectral form and i thought that was about the the most um imaginative visual element that was going on with the film but again that doesn't really i i think that scene i'm thinking of is is maybe 15 minutes before the end of the film and before that it's it's very uh 
uh, wrote, I think. Did it strike you, and this film came out in 1950, so this would have been before very many people in India would have had television, but the first, well, most of this movie struck me more like a television melodrama? Yeah, I think that that's a really good way of putting it. Yeah, it's a lot like that, I think. So I was wondering, because you said this movie felt interminable. It's actually not that long. It's about like two hours. Like, I get like I get that there's a lot of problems with this film, but I, I was a little... Because I didn't feel bored, bizarrely enough. So I was just surprised to hear that reaction from you. It's so difficult with a film like this because it's it's hard to say how much of the problem is the film itself and how much of the problem is, for example, the poor translation. Because a lot of times I was really left in the dark about what was happening. And there are certain films, you know, like when we have the skeleton scene, it doesn't really matter whether you know the specifics of the story at that point because it's just an engrossing visual moment it's just fun but if you're watching a lot of dialogue between characters and you can't keep their relationships quite straight and you're having trouble with that i think it makes it very difficult to engage uh with what the film is trying trying to tell you and also and this is i'll admit that this is really nitpicky this restoration is not great has it even been restored i would imagine that there was some degree of work just to clean it up because i think it would look worse if they hadn't done anything but i guess whatever whatever transfer this is looks really bad and usually that doesn't bother me that much but there are actually a lot of moments where i don't know this for sure but my guess is that when they were digitizing it something was going wrong with like the algorithm that was determining uh the focus because we keep getting all these shots with incredibly soft focus and then some characters fade in and out of focus and i don't think it was like an error by the camera operator or the cinematographer or director like it strikes me very much as being a problem with the the transfer do you think cuz i noticed some issues with the audio do you think that's part of the quote unquote restoration as well maybe that I noticed that as well. There's one particular scene where it becomes like super muffled for maybe 30 seconds. Um, and I, I really don't know what, what would have caused that. Well, I will note that audience, if you want to watch this movie and you want it with English subtitles, the only version that I could find is on Amazon prime and it's through Eros entertainment, which works with them or whatever. And Eros entertainment, which is, I don't know their exact corporate breakdown but they are maybe a production company and also i think a distributor of films um in in india and they've had from what i remember kind of a bad reputation um as far as their dvd transfers even for new films like i remember being on the bollywood boards back in the day and people buying dvds and being like what did they do to this movie like the colors all messed up so if they can't get like a post 2000 movie right who has much faith in them to restore something from 1950, you know? Before we get started on the second half of our episode, something I meant to mention was that the title of this film, Kankal, actually means skeleton in Bengali and... Yeah, that's the name. So <laughs> in case you were wondering, let's talk a little bit about the actors in this film. Probably the best known actor that I could find was Dheeraj Bhattacharya, and he played a boy and he was very famous for playing villains like he did in this film, but also romantic leads. He did a lot of films in Bengali and Hindi. Meanwhile, Malaya Sarkar, who played Tarula, she was just 18 in this film. Um, she also did a lot of Bengali and Hindi films. What stuck out the most to me about her is her very, very, very judgmental facial expression in almost every scene. I don't know if you <laughs> noticed that. It was kind of amazing. <laughs> and then also we had Paresh Pandopadai, who's, uh, who played uh, Raton. Um, who worked mostly in Bengali cinema, as I understand. Again, very little that I could find about these actors online. I wonder, David, did any of these actors uh, impress you with their performances? 
so Bhattacharya, the the actor who played Abhoy, I thought he was great in just like how scene chewing. There's a section at the beginning of the film where Abhoy is overheard by his wife uh, threatening Tarala and his wife believes that Abhoy is in love with Tarala and vice versa. And then he, you know, later on is like, oh, no, no, no. She was all into me, but I told her to get away. And like, that's, and the entire time he's saying this, he's like looking off, uh, you know, looking off camera with this, this vague grin. It was so (laughs) great. Um, And also, I I don't know the actress's name, but the actress who played, Abhoy's sister, the like very cruel sister-in-law is great. It's, I mean, it's the most one note performance possible, right? Because she just like looks like a jerk and acts like one too. <laughs> but it, it seems like it would be so much fun. And that actress is is like clearly really digging into it. I thought they they were really the standouts here. The next thing I wanted to talk about was this movie as a horror movie. So I know, David, you said earlier you didn't think you could regard it as such. I guess let's talk about why. I, the, the first thing I, I really thought about was the techniques that they use for the supernatural aspects. Tarala's ghostly apparition, you kind of talk favorably, favorably about that, how they superimposed her on top of that skeleton or however they did it. They also did a lot of they where they were they had to have been moving the skeleton off screen, semi-off screen, so that the the little skeleton hand would seem to be moving on its own, right? You also had the gust of wind that would come into the house when Tarula's spirit was present in there. To what extent do these low-tech approaches work? Did you find any of it scary? Not especially. I think but I think honestly that's more a result of the kind of fractured narrative structure which I know we'll get into in a moment but I think a lot a lot of the techniques even if they're not a kind of outwardly like oh scary like you know kind of like we understand modern movies to be I think they're they're creepy and uh, moreover, I think, you know, some of them are very aesthetically pleasing. I think they're interesting to look at, particularly the, you know, kind of the the ghost over the skeleton, which is something that uh, I had talked about earlier. And they, I believe, lifted from the film Metropolis, which I can't I can't remember exactly if they have a kind of a one to one comparison scene. But in that film, they also they have this robot android thing that like becomes a woman and so they have kind of a similar technique there and i think it it looks interesting in that film and it looks interesting here so i don't you know it's like some of the stuff doesn't work as well i think when the you know when the skeleton arm like tap tap taps (laughs) 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 and it kind of it kind of looks like it it was patting him on the head like (laughs) hey <laughs> that that doesn't really work super well, but I think there's some some like good ideas at work here. There there was potential. Although I mean, it's not like the skeleton or the ghost was mad at the doctor, right? So it could have just been like, "Hey, here I am." <laughs> I, I gotta say, like that that part where the skeleton does reach out to him, it did give me a little bit like, "Oh, that's creepy." Yeah, I mean, I think there are all these ideas that almost work, except they're undercut. Like the um, the gusts of wind, right after Tarla dies, and she's she's haunting the room that she died in. And I can't remember who the characters were, but there were two women in that room, right? And then the wind comes in and essentially goes into the the cabinet that she was locked in and closes the door and turns the handle and starts making a noise and one of the women is like hey what's what's up with that like <laughs> so nonchalantly and i just didn't i didn't understand why the film like a character in the film was communicating to us that like this really isn't that big of a deal i guess Right, like her reaction would have made a difference in how scary we perceived that effect. Because it was actually a good effect, right, I think? Oh, yeah. I mean, I thought it, I think when they showed, you know, the door closing by itself and the handle turning, it's like, oh, that's almost good. And then, again, the character, like, oh, that's weird. (laughs) Like, oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, okay. So there's the issue of the techniques that they used. Um, And as we mentioned before, the horror person of this portion of this movie and i checked it really of course you have the opener with the skeleton um but 
once you're into really the beginning of the film, it keeps going until really 20 minutes before the end when the supernatural stuff starts to happen. So a lot of this movie, like we said, is basically family drama. This film did utilize, I think, something you see a lot in horror movies, which is the trope of science versus the supernatural, right? We have a doctor um, who I guess he's supposed to be a, a psychologist or psychiatrist of some kind, but he also believes in the spirits and, and they kind of debate that a little bit. Um, so David, since you, I guess you fall in the column of maybe this is not horror, what makes you decide on that? Couldn't it just be in your view, maybe poorly executed horror, or do you really think it just doesn't fit the, the genre? I just don't, I don't think it fits the genre because I don't know that you can have a film that, you know, 20 minutes out of a two hour runtime is dedicated to some horror tropes and then call it horror. So much of it is not is not really focused on the horror element at all. And I always hesitate to call anything bad filmmaking because I, I don't, I think typically that's not a fruitful discussion and it's best to kind of talk about a film as though we're deliberate. But I think what happens here is that we open the film on the skeleton murdering a boy. And that's, that's the most like horror of the entire film. That is the most horror filled horror tropey scene of the entire film. We see it, you know, within maybe the first 60, 90 seconds of the film, it's set to this kind of weirdly jaunty tune, (laughs) I thought. And then we do that, you know, that's a framing device. We go, you know, we go back in time to see how everything came to be. So the first choice this film makes is to relieve all of the tension, to remove all of the tension from the film because we already have such a clear idea of of what is ultimately to to happen, what the principal threat is, and how that will be carried out. Even you know, as we're seeing more of the skeleton, we just you know go in knowing well the skeleton's going to go after a boy, and that you know it doesn't really build any of that tension. It doesn't do that structurally, and I think it also doesn't do that on a scene to scene basis because there's so much. Um, there are so many abrupt cuts and these these cuts that happen almost mid-scene where there will be two characters talking and then it's a cut to them talking in a new location like three weeks later or something. Yeah, that's a, it, it was confusing to understand the passage of time. I agree. Right, right. And I think as, if you're not, if you can't really understand that, then there's no, there's no room for a slow build. And... I, I guess that's the main thing is it felt like they weren't trying to build tension or horror. So it doesn't, it feels odd to call this a horror movie when in so many ways, that doesn't seem what to be what the objective was. I wonder how much this has to do with the fact that this is considered the first, at least the first still surviving Bengali horror movie. And it was from a period where filmmakers were experimenting with horror. So maybe they just didn't know what they were doing yet. I mean, maybe. I wonder, would they have... I imagine they would have had access to to horror film from, like, other other countries. Sure, sure, right. Because even um, in our Son of Frankenstein episode, I think you fell very firmly on that not being a scary film. But e- even that, which I think has more deliberate comedy, is almost more of a black comedy than it is straight horror. I think that has you know, is much more focused on building tension. Um, and it's kind of surprising to see that not that like totally absent here. Yeah. And another thing I will add is that I couldn't find information about what the source material was for this movie, whether it was an original story or whether it was something extrapolated from folklore or whether it was a novella. I couldn't find anything about that. So who knows how much that that must have influenced the storytelling here. Right. I think had the whole film been more or less like the last 20 minutes of it, I think I would have really enjoyed it. I think that's I still feel that's where this movie is most successful. Well, so on the topic of horror, uh, a source who I'll mention when we talk about our sources, Mitraj Dusia, he wrote a book all about um, Indian horror cinema, in case you wanted to to know more about it. He asserts that Indian horror works to build up traditional notions of gender. And he talks about 
hegemonic femininities and masculinities in Indian horror. And I think that horror film as a whole, no matter where it's from, a lot of times deals with gender and sexuality, right? We saw that. We've seen that with both the other films we've dealt with this month. I wondered, do you think we can see this reflected in Kunkal? And how much does this movie either defy or hold up traditional notions of gender or sexuality? Um, And on that note, I'll mention one of the quotes from the movie, even God doesn't have the right to enter a woman's mind. Um, That that stood out to me. But did you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, uh, I mean, it. I, th- I think it very clearly is is focused on on kind of gender relations because that's that entire portion before it it becomes horror is entirely obsessed with this idea that you know Abhoy he's tormenting, he's obsessed with Tarola, and he's using his advantages, his privilege, right in society to kind of pull the strings and move people against her and like also against her her husband it becomes more difficult when you ask like whether this upholds or attacks that hegemony i i don't i can't really say because i think for so much of the movie i was sitting there like well if anyone listened to tarola this would not be a problem Uh right this would get resolved if her husband listened to her if they were able to communicate about this he would not go off with a boy right like these you know, these issues would be resolved. So in some ways it feels like it's kind of criticizing that her being in this station and not being able to, to kind of protect herself uh, in any way or, or, you know, turn to people who are close to her for aid. But I don't really know what, I guess, where do you stand on that? What, what, what do you think this film is saying? Well, I was thinking about, Oh, and it won't have come out by now, but in the future, audience, we're going to do an episode about goofy cartoons. In the goofy cartoons that we talk about, they're from the 1950s and reflect a lot of social mores from that period. In the goofy cartoons, I know that Goofy was portrayed in some of them um, as as a gambler, which is a bad habit, usually ascribed to men. Um, But I also remember that uh, a, a lot of the shorts focused on, you know, Goofy making money for his wife and then his wife just spending it away, you know, um, after being a nag. And I thought it was a little bit interesting how this film perhaps in some ways flipped the script a little bit because, yes, men are characterized as gamblers normally, but here it's also the man who just spends the money, right? Right. He has a lot of money and he doesn't take care of it. And the woman is is the one who who doesn't think she she doesn't want him to spend the money, but she also doesn't value money too much, right? So I don't know. That's it's I guess it could be its own kind of problem if you're holding women to that standard and expecting them to keep their husbands in line. But I also don't really feel like the film blamed her for what happened to her husband. I don't know. Those were my thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's complicated because it does in some ways uphold this idea of, of kind of the men as being corruptible and women still kind of it's still being the, the responsibility of women to keep them in line or be, you know, be kind of the, the moral or reasonable voice. Um, but like you said, it didn't really feel like the film came down, you know, saying that like, oh, it was all Tarola's fault. Also, just as a side note, um, Abhoy is obviously horrible, but uh, Raton mm-hmm. is the worst, right? Because his investment strategy was to buy high and sell low, <laughs> right? Like he literally, he sold he sold the steel for, I think he said like 61, 61 rupees per, per whatever, per, per share. And then it goes up to 80 and he's like, we got to buy. <laughs> like, <laughs> Well, okay, so so here's something else interesting I thought of. We did have the sister-in-law who was insufferable, who you mentioned earlier, but then we have Tarola and then Anima. I kept forgetting her name. Anima is the name of the cousin of a boy. Oh, no, sorry, the wife of a boy. Anyway, the, the two of them are portrayed, I think, rather fav- favorably. And then it's a boy and uh, Raton, who is, one is basically evil and the other one is maybe not that bright, should listen to his wife. Definitely, it seems like the male characters are the ones who are in, in trouble here. 
Also, as a side note, could you get what they made a big deal about Raton being just like the most attractive guy? Uh-huh. Did why? <laughs> well, I think it's it, it was more because of his wealth. Um, okay. Because right, his I guess his father had passed away and he got that inheritance. Um, mm-hmm. And also the other thing is, right, Tarula was suffering under her, under Apoi's sister's abuse. And she said to Apoi, will you just marry me so that we can, like, get away from her or something? And he's like, no, I don't want to marry you. So I think once her her romantic interest was like, I'm not going to marry you, that made Raton much more attractive. And maybe there was some aspect of her that was like, you know what, I'm going to get back at this guy and I'm just going to marry this other guy. Could have been that, too. While we were talking about this, I was kind of sitting thinking, like, did I make it up that she seemed kind of into a boy at the beginning? Like, what? Because it, it flipped so quickly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I rewatched the beginning of the movie because it was confusing. And also, at the beginning of the movie, she gets a letter. I think it's after a boy has re- rejected her and she decides she wants to be with Raton and then Apoi sends a letter to her. She gets a letter and she opens it and there's no subtitle. So we have no idea what was in that letter. <gasps> That's right. And it's dramatic music. Yeah. And I, I I was literally sitting there watching this and Allie, Allie was in the kitchen and I was just like, I can't read this. I don't know what's happening. <laughs> <laughs> so frustrating. Seriously, Eros Entertainment, get it together. We got to know what that note says. <laughs> right. Come on, guys. Jeez. <laughs> The last thing I wanted to talk about today is the lack of quote-unquote realism. Um, something that we see in this movie, which is not just in this movie, but I think in a lot of especially older films and TV shows, is, for example, in an early-ish scene in the movie, Tarula's playing the sitar, but it's obvious that she's not playing the sitar. They don't fake it very well, you know? And then also the the scenes with the skeleton, it's... it's <laughs> A little bit co- unintentionally comical, I think, because they find the uh, Tarula's remains, right? The skeleton in a lake. But when they pull the skeleton out, the skeleton inexplicably all sticks together, even though human bones don't work that way. <laughs> and, I, I, that hadn't even occurred to me. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe there were some ligaments intact that we like couldn't see or something. I don't know. All I know is Raton runs around with that skeleton and it all stays in one piece. So I wondered whether you think the filmmakers, when we see stuff like this in, in movies and TV, are they aware of how these things are perceived? Is it just that audiences back then were more generous about stuff like this? Or is it because they're thinking in terms of like when you see a play and the props don't work exactly the way they would in real life because it's a play and you can't be doing, um, you know, visual effects or anything when something is live. Um, And maybe that impacted how much they thought it was important to make things realistic in films. Do you have any thoughts about that? Uh, Well, I mean, probably all of the above. I think specifically with the the sitar... It hasn't been until really, really recently, like after, you know, after uh, during the 2000s, after the year 2000, that I've noticed films were starting to take more of an effort to display um, kind of instrumentation more accurately. I think that's kind of true generally in cinema because there are a ton of examples of American films that just, you know, someone is playing an instrument and it just looks terrible, right? There is no real effort given to to trying to make it look realistic. Um, I think here was maybe especially bad uh, because she's playing the sitar, but her left hand isn't like holding down the string anywhere. Like they're not, it, it was pretty bad. But uh, to your point about audiences being more generous, I think that's absolutely true because, and this is something that's hard to remember, especially now because our, our you know, our lives are like 90% screens. I think it was much more rare, especially in 1950, right? Where, you know, I don't know how many people actually had a TV. I don't, I think they had TVs by this point, but it was certainly not, you know, prevalent. So the only place you would ever see a moving picture would probably be at the movies. So it was such a special kind of unique experience. I think 
maybe it's kind of like if we were to go, I don't know, you know, you go to Disneyland and you do star tours or whatever. When you go and you go on the ride and you just have the experience, you're not really sitting there kind of picking apart different like techniques or elements because it's, you know, when do you ever do this? Uh, it's such a unique experience. And then also, I, th- I think to your point about the the items being like props in a play, I think that's also a very salient point because we do... I mean, that that skeleton bit is hilarious. Um, but <laughs> I think we very much understand what is happening narratively and what's happening with the character. And that's, I guess that's a main focus. Although maybe it would have been, maybe they could have just used a skull like Hamlet style. Yeah, but how would the skull kill a boy? The skull could still summon the spirit, maybe. I well, guess. I would imagine so. <laughs> Maybe it's just this time the skull like floats down and taps the doctor <laughs> on the shoulder. <laughs> That's like those skeletons in uh, those early Disney cartoons, you know, the dancing Halloween ones. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, David, do you have any last words about the film today? So I think it's it's still totally worth checking out. Um, try and start from the beginning. But if you get you know, 15 minutes in and it's not really doing it for you. I don't think there's anything wrong with skipping ahead to the end and like watching the ending sequence. Um, Once you do that, maybe consider going back, watching the entire thing through to really get a a full sense of the film. But again, I think that that the last 20 minutes, especially, but really in general, the last half hour is where it starts to shine. Yeah, I think your mileage may vary. Or maybe it's just my mileage. I don't know. I got a kick out of watching this. I wasn't bored. I, I, I think I think it's it, it, it was a fun watch. If this is your first Bengali film, maybe don't judge the Bengali film industry by this <laughs> particular work. But yeah. I suppose I'll go ahead and thank my sources today. As I mentioned earlier, I referred to Mitraj Tusia in the book Indian Horror Cinema Engendering the Monstrous. Uh, This book actually just came out two years ago, and the entire thing is available online if you want to look at it. Um, It's a deep dive into Indian horror, so that's really cool. Again, our sources are always in the episode notes if you want to follow the link there. Um, Also, thank you to Indian Cine. Indian Cine? I-N-D-I-A-N-C-I-N-E dot M-A. That website. Thank you. Um, And also thanks to Wikipedia, as always. We are on social media, on Facebook, Maybe Today Matinee. Also on Instagram, Maybe Today Matinee. We're at Mayday Matinee on Twitter, Maybe Today Matinee at gmail.com. And also we're on Patreon. If you search Maybe Today Matinee, you can sign up and give us a dollar a month. Pretty soon we'll be introducing patron-exclusive episodes Um, So follow us there if you want to keep up with that. Check in next week for 1963's The Haunting as we continue our Halloween Horror Month. I'm Monica. I'm David. And this is Maybe Today Matinee.